Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by The Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. My name is Alexandra Janoka. We're now into July, and this month we wanted to shift our focus a bit and in honor of the first convention for women's rights in the U.S., talk about the history of the women's rights movement. With me today are my two colleagues and fellow Bridge Initiative committee members, Kelly Mazine and Sarah Hauck. Ladies, thank you and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So, let's get started. Let's talk about the history of the women's rights movement. Who wants to who wants to jump in here? Oh yeah, I'm looking at the <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like I was I was looking at the eyes. I was like, <laughs> Those eyes are to you. <laughs> oh, so. oh, we're doing this. Let's go. <laughs> um, it's morning, but we're doing it. <laughs> I've only had one cup of coffee, so it's a bit rough. <laughs> um, so I think it's important to start that in 1777 that all states had passed the law which took away women's rights to vote. Yeah, so I think before the declaration passed in 1776 that previously like territories some of the territories had given women mm-hmm. the right to vote. So this was this was kind of important especially for the history of of women's rights that they actually passed a law taking that away from them. I wonder what their thought process was. I know we'll never know, but it's like one of those things where you're just like, where women did have the right, and I know it was probably much limited on when they could and couldn't vote, probably just being back in the 1700s, but then just to kind of like, be like, oh, just kidding, we're taking that away. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then in, and then in 1787, when they held that the Constitutional Convention, Abigail Ad- Adams, um, who we featured in one of our This Month in Women's History uh, episodes, she begged her husband to remember the ladies. Well, I think he forgot. I think he forgot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, women, they were, back in those days, they were entirely dependent on the men in their lives, whether it's, you know, their father, their brother, their husband. They had they had no power to, to really do anything, to own property, to um, make contracts, to vote, nothing. They, you know, during this era, a woman was was only seen basically as um, like a way of enhancing the social status of her husband. And it's property. She, she was their property. Let's go forward. Yeah. The, so that was 1787. Um, we're going to jump to 1848. Um, talk a little bit about the first convention for women's rights. Um, you and I, Kelly, we were, mm-hmm. we were just talking about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, that, that Seneca Falls convention. Yes. So the Seneca Falls convention actually happened after she had met another activist while she was honeymooning in London, um, which kind of shows you how devoted she was. She was on her honeymoon and she was attending women's rights movements um, while she was on her honeymoon. Um, (laughs) So they had come back and I think it took about eight years to actually get it organized. But when it was all said and done, they had 300 men and women who attended and they created the Declaration of Sentiments which uh, connected the rights for women to our symbol of American liberty and freedom. Um, so they kind of enumerated the areas of life where like women were treated unjustly. So they talked about like married women legally dead in the eyes of the law, women not allowed to vote, um, how women had to submit to laws when they had no voice in their um, formation, um, and so on and so forth. So whenever it was done, all of the resolutions um, that they had talked about, um, passed unanimously with little to no amendment. Um, the only one that did not pass unanimously was women's suffrage. Um, what motivated the attendees was Frederick Douglass. Um, and he spoke that women, like the slave, had the right to liberty. 
And at the end of the convention, 68 women and 32 men signed um, signed the sentiments. Of course, there was immediate backlash and it was printed in newspapers um, and it caused a bit of an uproar. Um, however, the movement expanded and women's rights conventions were regularly held from 1850 until the start of the Civil War um, all over the country. And it drew, um, some of them drew very large crowds that they actually had to turn people away. Mm-hmm. So that kind of like kicked things off. Um, and then kind of from there, they went into 1866, where Congress passes the 14th Amendment, clarifying that citizens and voters are identified as male in the Constitution. Yes, there was that. So, Sarah, after mm-hmm. the 14th Amendment passed, what do you think, uh, you know, up until the 19th Amendment, um, what was the, the biggest um, wave or, or the biggest event that happened, legally speaking, um, for women between those two times. So 1866 and 1919, 1920? 1920. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a tough one because I think what you started to see after the Seneca Falls Convention is you started to see an increased movement of attempting to to enfranchise women and at the same time still sort of continuing the disenfranchisement. So the, the intent of the 14th Amendment was to give former slaves equal protection to voting rights under the law. It wasn't intended to to protect women. And I think when you had sort of all of these kind of tensions going on between, you know, protecting you know, former slaves between the Seneca Falls Convention. Um, you started to have some territories granting women suffrage at this point. You had women who were starting to become admitted to the bar. On the other hand, you you also had um, cases basically allowing states to exclude a married woman from practicing law. You had um, Minor versus Happerset, which was a U.S. Supreme Court case declaring that despite the privileges and immunities clause, a state can prohibit women from voting. Um, so I think all of these things kind of started to to lead to a a perfect storm. I think you had the the legal cases that were saying that were that were tended to be very anti the enfranchisement of women. You had you know so I think sort of lack of support you know in the legislature, but then you also had this underground movement swelling in terms of um, desiring to enfranchise women. So I don't know if there's any sort of significant event between the Seneca Falls Convention or in 1920, more just an increasing movement toward enfranchisement. Yeah, right before that, um, 1916, we had the first woman to be elected to the House of Representatives, Jeanette Rankin. Um, I think that's pretty, that, that, you know, to build on what you were saying, the movement um, kind of swelled. I think that's a really important historical event for, for women, especially, you know, nowadays in 2019 when we have... Um, we have so many women that were recently elected mm-hmm. to Congress. Right. I think it was also interesting. I was kind of reading um, things back, but also kind of how you're talking like it's the perfect storm just because there's so many tensions. Mm-hmm. That from 19, I'm sorry, from 1890 to 1920, there was also another movement going on called the Progressive Era, which was about eliminating problems caused by industrialization, urbanization, immigration, and political corruption, which mm-hmm. I'm sure probably had its hand also within the women's suffrage um that was something interesting i hadn't read about before and i never even knew that era existed mm-hmm. right and so that brings us right up to 1920 when the 19th amendment to the constitution was ratified ensuring that women had had indeed the right to vote um i think that another really important 
historical um, and, and legal action, sort of, um, happened shortly after that in 1923, um, the Equal Rights Amendment. Sarah, do you want to talk a little bit about the Equal Rights Amendment? So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess we could talk a, a little bit about that. So the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, I think is, there, there's a quite a bit of history sort of behind that. I mean, when you, I think, look at it kind of fundamentally, it says, you know, men and women shall have equal rights, essentially. Um, where it got, you know, sort of interesting over time is that there was a tension between kind of the various women's groups between, you know, we want the Equal Rights Amendment for equal rights versus um, labor groups that had fought to get protections for women in the labor force in terms of, you know, not having to lift um, certain weights um, in terms of uh, better working conditions and hours and things like that. So the fear from the labor groups was that if this Equal Rights Amendment is passed, it would undo all of the progress that had been made in that front. So really, I think you had a, women's groups essentially opposing each other in the context of the Equal Rights Amendment, and that continued even into the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's something that's sort of interesting, and maybe that's not kind of apparent, is that you know there's you know a justification that you know I, I don't think I, at least I can't sort of readily dismiss um, that that tension there. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that there was there's such that division. And I mean, I can certainly see both sides of it, you know, as a professional woman, but also as a woman, you know, I want the, I want equal rights as men, but I see what they're, what they were saying, especially back in 1923, when, um, you know, when there weren't as many protections from the law as we enjoy now. So, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that the equal rights amendment has some problems, but, um, I'm really interested to see, especially, you know, in 2018, wasn't there was one, the 37th state ratified. Yeah, I think Illinois in, did. Yeah, I think it was Illinois in 2018 in May. Um, so I have the list. So the list oh, that have, <laughs> I, these are the ones that have not. Um, it's Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, um, Virginia, Utah, South Carolina, Oklahoma, North Carolina, and Missouri. Mm-hmm. And I believe five states attempted to rescind their previous ratification yeah yeah so that's unknown whether that's legally uh permissible um but that is um that is something that in the uh, 70s uh, was was happening i also think you know one thing that's interesting now in the context of the equal rights amendment is now we're, we're dealing with a completely different type of economy we're in the information age now yep. as opposed to you know there's less manufacturing and, and those kinds of of jobs, frankly. And so, you know, I think, you know, the renewed interest in the Equal Rights Amendment, I think, is at an opportune time, just given the shift in the economy um, and the, the types of jobs that are that are out there. Yeah, agreed. Um, so let's, let's move on from the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, what is the next kind of big event that happened in the in the women's rights movement that you might want to talk about either one of you, Sarah or Kelly. I think the one that I guess that always dumbfounds me is um, Title IX and like the right to education, uh, just because that's something I've always grown up with. And as a child, I hated going to school. I wanted to stay <laughs> home and watch TV. Um, but just the fact that like even my grandmother might not have had that right or something along those lines, it just finds I find to be really baffling, like something as simple as education, which I think everyone should have the right to. Women had to fight for that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it was just kind of good. Because I guess, like, and you just kind of think about it, it's like, 
Well, yeah, then it kind of makes sense when you hear about all male colleges and things like that, mm-hmm. like, and how they've had to change and things like that. But, yeah, I went to an all-girls college. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they. I mean, they have them for both. I mean, now yeah. that the, the college that I went to is now a university, but mm-hmm. it's it's actually a co-ed school now. So I think that's really interesting. But let's let's go back a little bit, because Title IX was in the 70s, right? Let's mm-hmm. go back mm-hmm. to the 60s, um, particularly... There were a couple of really important ones that happened in the the 60s, right, Sarah? Yeah. I mean, I would say the Equal Pay Act, um, which promised equitable wages for the same work, regardless of race, color, religion, national origin, or sex of the worker, and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibited um, sex discrimination in employment. So I think those are the the key um, acts that were passed in the early to mid-1960s that I think still have um, very positive effects on, on us today. Um, so one thing I think, you know, Title VII, I think, is, is particularly interesting because uh, sex was a last-minute addition to the bill by uh, Representative uh, Howard Smith, a Democrat from Virginia. And uh, a lot of people think that the addition of sex was a joke, uh, but there's pretty substantial evidence indicating that it wasn't. So the representative that added it was actually pretty heavily lobbied by um, the National Organization for Women, and there were... Uh, quite a, there was quite a bit of, um, I think, discussion and involvement on his part before he had added that amendment. So I think that's something you know that was fascinating to me when I sort of read the history. And it was perceived to be really a large victory in terms of women's rights. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting is that the EEOC, which was essentially responsible for enforcing Title VII, viewed the ban on sex discrimination as a joke. And the director actually told the public that this representative's amendment was a fluke that had been conceived out, out of wedlock. And of the 4,000 claims of sex discrimination in the workplace that were fired from, filed from 1964-1966, the commission ruled against women workers in almost every case. Really? Yes. So, so the National Organization for Women actually ended up working through courts and legislatures to get Title VII enforced. And they politically mobilized and um, really, I think, helped turn the tide in terms of uh, federal enforcement of, of the law. So I thought that was, that was something that was incredibly, incredibly interesting about the history. Yeah, I, I didn't know that part of it. That's, that's pretty incredible in the 60s. It's just like, out of, I'm curious to know what the exact number is out of like those 4,000 cases were actually won mm-hmm. by women. And I would be really interested to see, like, what would be like the like what was their justification when they went down to the rulings because I'm sure it was probably just something something very minuscule or something or it came down to a he said she said yeah and I would hope that wouldn't be the case but I have a feeling that probably was yeah I mean look at our history mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I mean it's still pretty much what it always comes down to I also can't believe when he was like describing yeah. he said it came out of wedlock Mm-hmm. That verbiage really bothers me. Yes. The agreed. way that to use that word. Yes. I actually probably have the numbers, which is kind of scary. But it might take me a minute to find it. It might not, it might not, it might not be the most productive use of our time. But. Why don't we, uh, we'll post the numbers in the recording. Um, definitely. If we can't find them, we'll, we'll search them and we'll find them. We'll put them in the, in the recording. Um, then let's go on to, that was, so that was the 60s. Let's fast forward and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Title IX because um, I know that was something that you, Kelly, specifically um, in, you know, were interested in. Mm-hmm. So what is Title IX, Kelly? 
So Title IX of the Education Amendment um, prohibits sex discrimination in all aspects of education programs that receive um, federal support. Um, So pretty much any school that was receiving federal support, they had to allow anyone in. They couldn't discriminate based off of their sex, which I wonder in 1972 how many schools went from being like federally supported to like privately owned. Mm -hmm. That's just something I thought of. Like that would be interesting to see if any schools made a switch or change um, because of the Title IX. Or vice versa. Or vice versa, yeah. Or they decided that they were private and they wanted to be um, all inclusive. So that's actually something I want to look more into. But I guess it just comes down to like in 1972, like. I'm in the process of getting my master's degree and like mm-hmm. I went to a four-year university and that might not have even been possible. We're very proud of you about <laughs> that for just as an aside. <laughs> we're very proud of you for, for pursuing your master's. But yes, I I wonder if it would have been possible for you. Yeah, like <clears throat> when because it's just interesting because I also now that we like we've talked about it, like um how we mentioned like in 1869 it was Ada H. Kepley who was the first woman to graduate from law school. So it's just kind of interesting to see that some schools were many women back even in the late 1800s to then kind of go into 1972 where it's like some schools. I don't know. It's just very interesting to see how things, sometimes it's like very progressive and then it kind of goes back. 10 steps backwards. Yeah. And then to go like one step forward, once again, 10 steps backwards. Well, I think that it's also interesting that, so that passed in 1972 and we're now in in 2019 and women are earning degrees at a higher pace than men and mm-hmm. at a higher degree than men. You know, so women are seeking their masters, their PhDs, their um, their law degrees a little bit higher than men are, statistically speaking. So I think that's really interesting that you know maybe because we've been held back for so long that mm-hmm. or maybe just the opportunities are there that for, for education. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. I agree. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think for education, certainly in Title IX had a very crucial impact. And I think the statistics over time bear that out in terms of how many more women are participating in college sports mm-hmm. and a, a lot of the other sort of impacts by prohibiting sex discrimination in federally funded educational programs. But I think there's still the issue of, you know, as women advance in their careers um, and they start to have children, then there's still, even though you have the Pregnancy Discrimination Act it, it, that sort of, in theory, prohibits overt discrimination, there's still a lot of insidious discrimination that occurs. And I've heard, I mean, I've, I've known of numerous situations in, in which that's happened even among my peer group. Yeah, and there's a, like a mommy wage kind of thing? There's a mommy wage kind of thing. There's, I, I've known people who've been told, you know, it's time for them to now stay at home with their children. What's the mommy wage? I've never heard of that. It's like, so, you know, women make up a certain amount of money and then they get pregnant and then mm-hmm. they, they have their children and after, after that, their wages like decrease. Yeah. Okay. Each child okay. is a decrease in wages. Mm-hmm. So mothers have a 4% penalty for each child, yeah. whereas fathers receive a 6% increase in pay for each child. If anyone can see Jen's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like how you fast I was that one out? <laughs> I'm very angry. That just like fine really angers me as well just because like um in my household my mom was the breadwinner my dad um like my mom was an accountant and so she was the one who always got more significant increases and she was kind of lucky because like while she had me and my sister two years apart and while when she finally went back to work she had to work like she would work at night and just like work through the night and then come home and be with me and my sister so that way she could do that 
just and then because like my dad's a machinist so he's mm-hmm. he's in the union and things mm-hmm. like that so to me that's just infuriating <laughs> and I would never I guess that also comes to the fact that like I'm getting my education and should I ever like want to have children to know that I'm working so hard and paying so much money to do so mm-hmm. that it could actually cause me to get a decrease instead of an increase just yeah. really angers me four percent like Sarah said every time you have a kid I agree. It's a real them. thing. Yeah. I think it's, 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 a, it's a compression on wage. It's a compression on wages, basically. And think about how that impacts families mm-hmm. economically, because you know, once you have a kid, there's so many expenses. You know, not just diapers, but childcare is yes, the big one. Right? My friend has told me how much they have to spend in childcare. And it makes me want to vomit. Like, there's no other way to put it. I'm sure it's really expensive. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just like. Oh my god! Like it, it, it makes me hyperventilate, and I don't even have children <laughs> yet. <laughs> Grand dogs. I've told my parents that mm-hmm. they have to get used to that idea. <laughs> All right, so let's move on from uh, nineteen seventy-two. Um, what's the next big, big thing that happens in women's rights? I think it's Roe versus Wade the next year. That that is a big one. That's a very controversial one, especially even now in 2019, which is kind yeah. of crazy. It's once again take one step forward, take ten back, and mm-hmm. everything along those lines. For I mean, especially in terms of if we're, if we're thinking about this as equal rights, mm-hmm. you know, um, Sarah Sarah's giving me a look like <laughs> move on, move on. Next subject. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you talked a little bit about the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, Sarah, that, that bans employment discrimination um, against pregnant women. That happened in 1978. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, the next big thing for me, you guys all know that I'm going to mention this because I have to mention it. 1981, SDOC, my girl, <laughs> Sam Connor, uh, she became the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court. I am so excited because Alicia and I are going to do a This Month in Women's History episode in September about Sandra Day O'Connor. Get ready, guys, because that one is going to be lit, (laughs) as the kids say. (laughs) Anyway, um, what else happened um, in 1981 um, that I think is kind of... uh, It's kind of important that the Supreme Court ruled that excluding women from the draft is constitutional, um, which I have really mixed feelings about, because while... I mean, I don't think that I would serve well. Um, I, you know, me being a problem with authority child. But, you know, if we're, if we're all seeking equal rights, mm-hmm. I feel like that's uh, a step backwards in the direction of equal rights. What else? Um, I love that Lady Diana Spencer deletes the vow to obey her husband as she marries Prince Charles. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very significant. She's the one who truly started to change the, like, royal family. Like, mm-hmm. I love her. Um, we share the same birthday. Um, but it's just, like, she, I mean, she was just, like, a commoner. And it's just kind of crazy to see how she went into the royal family. She got divorced, which was, like, unheard of. I think the really the only immediate person within the royal family was Queen Elizabeth's sister who got divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, but then now you kind of just fast forward and see where, like, William married Kate and how Harry married Meghan Merkel, who's mm-hmm. American, um, and was a divorcee. And was a divorcee. Um, and she's also... And she's biracial. Yep, biracial. Yep, so that's right, Jen. She's biracial. kind of crazy and great to see. And I'm just excited to see where it takes the royal family within, like, the next, like, five to ten years. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be really interesting. Um, so moving forward, 1982, we already talked about 
um, the ERA and how 1982 was the, was kind of the, the deadline, um, and it fell short of ratification. Um, but we already talked about 37, 37 of the 38 needed, right? 38, 38 yeah. Um, so that happened in 2018. So you know, maybe there's still a little bit of hope for the future. Let's let's keep moving through the 80s here. So what's next on on the agenda for uh, from like a legal perspective? What was kind of the next big thing that happened? Um, I think for me, so I know like there was a, I mean, there was some Supreme Court, at least one Supreme Court case um, in 1986 uh, holding that like a work environment can be declared hostile or abusive, abusive because of sex discrimination, which is important for sexual harassment cases. So I think that was kind of sort of kind of the next sort of movement that you start to see where, you know, you have the kind of Supreme Court weighing in, um, and then in 1992, you had the Clarence Thomas hearings, yep. um, you know, in which um, lawyer Anita Hill accused um, then nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. And you started to see sort of more conversations and more cases um, concerning um, sexual harassment. 1993, Harris versus Forklift Systems, where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the victim did not need to show that she suffered physical or serious psychological injury as a result of sexual harassment. 1994, Violence Against Women Act. So you started to see the movement kind of going towards kind of that level of, of protection for women. Um, so I thought that was you know just an interesting trend that you kind of started to see over, over a five-year period or so. Which I think if, if you if you look back, so that was the Violence Against Women Act was 1994. And if you look back to the very beginning of this podcast when we were talking about, you know, 1777, 17, uh, or even into the 1800s, where we were saying that, you know, women belonged wholly to the men in their life. Um, you know, they were considered property. So whatever was done to them by those men, the law, it, w- it was... Um, you know, all copacetic in the eyes of the law. Uh, women had no recourse to that. So, you know, fast forward 200 years and, and women finally had some, some sort of recourse. So, I mean, 200 years, guys. I can't believe that took until 94. Keep moving. Well, and didn't it just expire? I think that it expired. I think it was last year that it expired. Um, I remember everybody talking about it. I do remember the discussion. I'm not sure if it's been renewed since then, um, but I do remember that there was a discussion. I think it was it was within the past year um, that it had expired. Reauthorization Act of 1918. Okay, okay. So it expired on December 21st, 1918. On April 4th, 2019, it looks like it passed the House... Yeah, it was so it was temporarily reauthorized by a short-term spending bill on, bill on January 25th, 2019. Expired again on February 15th. On April 4th, it passed the House, and all Democrats voting joined by 33 Republicans voted for passage. So I'm not sure if it's passed the Senate. We'll have to check on that. Yeah, one. we'll have to check. But it looks like it's at least you know, active, active in terms of progressing at the very least for reauthorization. So then I guess the next thing, big thing um, for me kind of goes back to elaborating more on Title IX was back in 1997. Um, the Supreme Court ruled that college athletic programs must actually involve roughly equal numbers of men and women to qualify for federal support. Um, yeah, I bet that was important for you because you were very actively, I mean, you're very athletic, so <laughs> you're I think, actively involved in 
Didn't do anything in college. Um, no college? I did high school. I did high school. I played two sports throughout high school. What did you play? Um, I did softball and cross country. So I just think that, like, once again, I just, I guess we're privileged in that sense where we grew up in such an equal thing mm-hmm. where, like, I mean, at least at my high school, like, there anything there was pretty much a boys sport for, girls could do it. Or if there was not a girls ones, they could join the boys team. Um, mm-hmm. They may not always get to do depending on like the schools they were up against um they may not always get to compete but they still were given the option and i think like there was even like one year i think like we had like one or two girls from the soccer team who tried out to be like the kicker for the football team and things like that and That's then awesome. in the end they couldn't do it because of the time commitment for soccer mm-hmm. uh, but still like i guess like in that sense like same with like even in the band like i think we had one guy who decided to be like an all all american one of the flag twirlers nice. um so I think like that's just important to see like how that has progressed, but it's just like it's just mind baffling to me. I guess I kind of keep going back to that, just considering the fact that like someone who grew up in like before '97 or prior or like was in school before then, like they could have went to a school and like they didn't have to have a women's program. Mm-hmm. Which think just... about the impact of that. So so we're recording this episode like literally the day after the U.S. women's team won mm-hmm. the Women's World Cup. I think about that. Yeah. The impact of that. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because they're still trying to fight for equal pay and they just won the World Cup. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I mean, that's a shame. It, that's such a shame. Um, but yeah, I mean, think about... I mean, we wouldn't have that. I mean, and our whole country is celebrating that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all very proud of them. And to think that those those women wouldn't have been given the option mm-hmm. um to to hone their skills to the level where they are now you know where would we be <laughs> i don't want to know <laughs> i don't want to know where we'd be <laughs> you know, still trying to you know root for the boys uh, the, sorry not boys nope. the men's team yeah <laughs> no thanks but yeah i think it's also like just it illustrates you know the challenges also that still exist in terms of equal pay in terms of like you mentioned education because I remember back in ni- 1996 when, when I was in college, uh, the Virginia Military Institute case, where there were um, lots of young women who wanted to attend the Virginia Military Institute, a very prestigious organization with a um, heavy endowment and, and strong engineering program, and they didn't admit women. And the U.S. government actually sued Virginia under the Equal Protection Clause. Title IX wouldn't have applied because it was... Um, an undergraduate institution that was traditionally and historically single sex. So it was excluded from, from Title IX, from the Title IX purview. And what the Virginia Military Institute ultimately, what they did is they basically established like a separate college for women that was really watered down, didn't have an engineering program, no military aspect. Um, and the lower courts basically said, okay. Um, and some of the things uh, that were cited as far as um, justification of the differences between the programs were things like, you know, uh, women women do not need the level leveling experience of a rat line and adversative methods because women are generally raised with a lower self-image than, than men. Uh, things like women yeah. basically, women steps? basically have not the same threshold on emotion as men do. They break down emotionally. Women are not capable of the ferocity requisite to make the program work and they are not capable of enduring without psychological trauma if they went through the rat program. And admission of women would impair the VMI system because of the dating and young women's aspirations to marry that are still in the South very common. So this wasn't 1800s. This was 1996. 
That makes me want to puke a little. <laughs> I, I'm flabbergasted that that was 1996. I'm flabbergasted by the last one you stated that women would want to date, and that's the only reason that they would go into the program. And that was the reason for excluding them. That was part of the, the basis. So so the U.S. Supreme Court, I mean, they used what's called, sorry, I guess, the intermediate uh, scrutiny test. And they struck down the, the male-only admission policy of, of the VMI. Well, that's good. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so it was struck down. But just, just to hear kind of the rationale, the underlying rationale behind the exclusion and think, like, I was in college at the time that this case was decided. That's pretty... I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, I could have been one of these women applying to this college. Yeah. I lived in Virginia because yeah. I was in that age group. So That's just crazy. And I, I feel like we're laughing because if we don't laugh, we might, like, scream. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think that's true. I just, like, it just, like, I don't know, I guess just being the age we are and mm-hmm. just to hear something that happened like that when I was essentially, like, four years old kind of just is, like, it's one of those things you never think is actually still occurring in your lifetime, but yeah. it is. We're just not really cognitive of it. Yeah, um, I was a kid. Um, 1994. I was I was not applying to college. Um, <laughs> but I was in I was in that grade school. But anyway, we gotta move on because I might scream. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, so what was um, that was 1996? You said Sarah. So what? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of was the next the next thing? So we're kind of moving into this into the 2000s, right? So it's, we're almost catching up to ourselves. Yeah, well, I mean, I liked 1997, Madeleine Albright becoming the first female Secretary of State. I liked yes. that, that, I remember that. That was, uh, that was enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> Just to finally see women in, in that position, I thought was really, was really great. I think that we have, you know, moving into two, into the 2000s, you know, we have some other um, first women's yes. kind of thing. So Hillary Clinton became the first first lady to be elected to public to public office as U.S. Senator. Um, and then Condoleezza Rice as well. She became the first um, black female secretary of state. So, And then in 2007, Nancy Pelosi became the first female speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. All, all really um, recent mm-hmm. um, history for women's first. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then was uh, 2009. You had mentioned this. A lot earlier, Sarah, in the podcast, the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Restoration Act. That is a mouthful. Yeah. So, so I was so I was, earlier I was mentioning the Equal Pay Act. So this is another piece of legislation, which is um, allowing sort of victim of, victims of pay discrimination to file a complaint with the government against their employer within 180 days of their last paycheck. So there's, I think, several pieces kind of of, of legislation that. You know, you have the Equal Pay Act, you have the Lilly Ledbetter Act, um, and then there's also kind of the attempt to, in 2012, to pass a, a Paycheck Fairness Act. And I think, you know, when you have all of these sort of pieces of legislation, I think that kind of shows that so far, like, what's been done isn't completely working yet. And so I think there's still sort of attempts to try to even the playing field, but I think mm-hmm. the fact that there still are attempts and the statistics bear out that there's still pay disparity um, between women and men for equal work, um, you know, I think these things illustrate the, the fact that there's still more work to be needed in order to, to truly achieve equality if a man and a woman are doing the exact same job, mm-hmm. exact same hours, exact same skill set, and you have a pay disparity. Yeah. Isn't it like 
for every dollar a male makes, it's like a woman makes 79 cents or something like that. Something like that. I don't remember what the exact number and it's is like, now, that's white women. And that's white women. Yeah. And I know like if you're um, like a woman of color, it's even lower than that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, so, and so, I mean, there's certainly things that affect the pay gap that aren't, you know, per se discriminatory. Like one example is, and Linda Babcock, who is a, one of my professors at Carnegie Mellon, wrote a book on this, Women Don't Ask. What you negotiate for your very first job sort of dictates your your pay throughout the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she found is women don't ask. They don't negotiate their offers. And so if you start off on a playing field that's lower, you're going to have a lower salary than chances are your male colleagues who probably negotiated their raises and negotiated their their offers. Mm -hmm. And that's not, you know, something that's per se discriminatory by... So it's, so I think it's interesting because I think you have the, you know, sort of women not asking for a salary increase at the offer stage in and of itself is not per se discriminatory, but, you know, could employers be offering a, a lower starting wage? Could they be kind of knowing that women probably aren't going to ask, you know, and instead of offering kind of a, a more fair or equitable offer up front, you know, so I think that's something that would be interesting to, to explore to see if there is still even implicit discrimination in, 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 in that aspect. Um, but I think it's it's still, I think just history is bearing out that, you know, sort of the equal pay so far, we're not there. We still have a gap. Mm-hmm. It it's, hasn't been, I think, closing as, as quickly as I think people hoped it would. Um, I think you still have kind of the, the motherhood question, the pregnancy, insidious pregnancy discrimination issues in the mind of employers. I think there's still a lot of stereotypes that are out there. You know, if this employee has a child, is she going to come back? Is she going to want to come back part time? Is this going to cost me? And, and I think there have been studies that have shown that it's actually less expensive in the long run to help women through those first couple of years that after having a child as opposed to that woman either self leaving or either choosing to leave the workforce, choosing another job or being terminated or encouraged to leave mm-hmm. ver- you know, and, and then having to train up and pay someone else right. and, and having that, that implicit cost there and explicit cost. Yeah. So, so that was, um, that was in 2012. So what else do we have? Um, I think that the, Probably, to me at least, the biggest thing, you know, that happened next was, um, you know, when in 2016, when Hillary Clinton secured the Democratic presidential nomination, becoming the first U.S. woman to lead the ticket for a major party. And we all know now it was 2019. She lost that election. Um, But I think that it's really important that um, that she was the first woman, you know, whether whatever your politics are. As a woman, it's important that you know we had a woman uh, lead the, the the nomination for a major party. And then in 2017, um, as we talked about a little bit earlier, um, you know Congress had that that record number of women with 104 female House members and 21 female senators, including the chamber's first Latina, um, who's um, Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. So, yep. One of my favorite things, uh, I think it was, I think it was that election, um, or maybe it was uh, 2018. But anyway, one of the the recent elections, there was a in Texas. I think I'm in Houston, Texas. There were 19 black women elected as judges. 
I thought that was just awesome. That's that amazing. Is, it it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was just incredible. I love this wave of diversity that we're that we're feeling right now. That that's coming into into the house. That's coming into the Senate. That you know we have um, we've got women and men from every ethnicity, every um, every background, every mm-hmm. socioeconomic status, basically. Now and I think that our country is going to move forward at a little bit more of a rapid pace because of them. Um, I think that's just I think that's amazing and it's just really cool. Um, so my last question for you guys now that we're kind of kind of caught up, unless there's something else that's going on. No, okay. So here's my question for for you guys: What do you think between um, you know, the time we started this podcast, 1777, and today, July? whatever it is, 2019, um, what, do you, what do you think was the, 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 the thing that had the biggest impact on women's rights in America specifically? I don't know if you could just pick one thing. Like, I think, like, each act and each amendment that came into play helped with so many different areas. Like, it wasn't like they just focused on pay or mm-hmm. discrimination or, um, like, the violence acts like they all had their own role in which case to help just improve the quality of life for women overall so I think if you had one if one didn't happen then it'd be lagging behind so Mm -hmm. I think they're all pretty much equal to me in that sense and all kind of they each serve their own purpose yeah like maybe like Sarah said before Mm -hmm. it it all kind of led it's all Mm -hmm. led to this yes right um take one away what do we have what are we left with yeah you know, it's like a like Jenga, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think from a legislative perspective, um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was really kind of the impetus for um, a lot of these other laws that ultimately passed. So I think you know, like the Equal Employment Opportunity Act of 1972 was an amendment to to that. So I think from a, like a sort of legal legislative perspective, I, I think that was particularly instrumental. Um, I think in terms of sort of constitutionally, I mean, I think just getting the right to vote. I mean, that's yeah. that was the pretty, you know, we, we just touched upon that briefly. And even that came down to, to the wire, came down to Harry T. Byrne in Tennessee, whose mom wrote him a letter telling him to vote for women's suffrage. <laughs> so, Thanks, Mom. Thanks, mom. <laughs> and, and so I think, I mean, that, you know, it was, I think, a significant sort of impetus for the mobilization and, and the grassroots organizing that occurred in that 44 year period between the passing the passage of the women's right to vote and the civil rights act mm-hmm. in 1964 so true i mean you can't take away any of these things they all have um like kelly said their own historic significance um so so let's wrap this up um thank you both uh for spending time with us um Again, this is A Little Louder Now by The Bridge Initiative. Thank you, Kelly and Sarah, for the great conversation today. Um, Thank you, listeners, for taking some time with me to talk about the history of the women's rights movement in the United States. Uh, It's just so important to know our history, um, to know where we came from. Stay tuned for more podcasts featuring great women from financial services talking about a variety of topics. If you'd like to catch up on what we've been doing, if you have questions, topic ideas, or if you'd like to join the Bridge Initiative community, you can visit fi360bridge.com to check out previous podcasts, webinars, and blog posts. Email us at bridge at fi360.com and connect with us on Twitter at fi360bridge. 
You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.